listening to the Plugged In Podcast, a new project from the Institute for Energy Research. To find out more about our work, visit our website at instituteforenergyresearch.org. Welcome to the Plugged In Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Stevens. I'm joined by my colleague, Jordan McGillis. Joining us today to discuss the history of U.S. energy policy is Robert L. Bradley, Jr., Rob is the CEO and founder of the Institute for Energy Research and one of the nation's leading experts on the history and regulation of energy markets. He's the author of several books, including most recently, Enron Ascending, The Forgotten Years, which is the third book in a series that explores the rise and fall of Enron and the company's relationship to the system of political capitalism. He received an MA in economics from the University of Houston and a PhD in political economy from the International College. He's been a Schultz Fellow and a Liberty Fund Fellow for Economic Research, and in 2002, he received the Julian L. Simon Memorial Award for his work on energy and sustainable development. Rob, thanks for joining us today. Good to be here. What we kind of wanted to do today was go over a little bit of your intellectual history and then talk about maybe the past 40 years of energy policy and regulation here in the U.S. I know for you and a lot of people in the free market movement, the energy crisis of the early 1970s played a big role in shaping your worldview. Can you talk about what that experience was like, what caused the crisis, and then explain how that event led you to develop an interest in energy and economics? Sure. Well, the 1970s, uh, which was before uh, many of the listeners were born, was uh, quite a decade uh, before the 1970s, except during wartime, uh, World War One, World War II, the Korean crisis. Uh, there was plenty of oil and gas. It was uh, pretty much a buyer's market and not a seller's market. And as a matter of fact, most of the regulation with oil and gas from the 1920s until the 1970s was to try to restrict supply to get prices up. It was a uh, it was crony capitalism, it was uh, oil and gas producers uh, versus consumers. But on a fateful day in August 1971, President Richard Nixon imposed wage and price controls on the United States economy. Of course, this was going to be a temporary program. It was just for 90 days. But uh, Milton Friedman and some of the other free market economists were very worried that this was the beginning of something that could be very bad. And as a matter of fact, uh, maximum price controls on oil, on crude oil and oil products started to create problems, uh, some shortages at the wholesale level, and it was about to uh, reach consumers at the gasoline pump even before the Arab embargo of October 1973. So price controls uh, started creating shortages. Now, on the natural gas side, uh, the federal government had wellhead price controls that they implemented on a comprehensive basis for all gas moving in interstate commerce, which is most of it. Uh, they implemented that. Uh, it was a Supreme Court decision uh, in 1954, and by the early 70s, uh, natural gas shortages started to pop up. Now, there's plenty of uh, pipelines, there's plenty of storage, but there was just not enough natural gas. So in the winter of 1971-1972, we had uh, natural gas shortages uh, at, the at the peak heating season. 
schools were closed, uh, uh, industry shut down, and we had a bona fide energy crisis, really the first one uh, in peacetime. And a colleague of mine, uh, Donald Boudreau, uh, an eminent economist at George Mason University, he was in school at the time, and this got his attention, and it led him to become an economist. And then with oil and gasoline in particular, uh, it was in uh, the early months of 1974 where we had shortages where there were actually queues at the gasoline service stations, uh, that people were uh, just uh, sitting in their cars or getting out of their cars and waiting it out to top their tanks. And this happened again in 19, in the summer of 1979. Uh, it was due to uh, price and allocation controls. And so general students of the free market, free market economists, for the first time got really focused on energy, on natural gas and on uh, oil, oil products uh, for the first time. So if you are a general free market scholar, then uh, one of the issues that was at the top of your queue was energy policy. And as a matter of fact, the field of energy economics emerged in the 1970s uh, for the first time uh, because we had uh, physical shortages. So what is Rob Bradley doing at the time? Well, uh, the summer of 79, I remember it well in Houston, Texas, I was waiting in line. I had a gas guzzler, uh, uh, a 1970 Torino Cobra. We all had gas guzzlers back then. We though, all right? had gas guzzlers. That's right, Jordan. Uh, and so uh, I had a date that night, and she was cute. And I wasn't sure if I was going to uh, have enough uh, gasoline. So it was a uh, it was a close call, and it's just it's a lot of trouble when you have to plan your uh, your day around uh, getting uh, gasoline. Um, so that got my attention. And uh, growing up in Houston, Texas, which is the oil and gas capital uh, of the United States, one thing led to another, and I uh, came to specialize in uh, oil and gas, and then later uh, with electricity from a classical liberal free market perspective. The classical liberal perspective, then, how did you come to find the influential thinkers in that uh, in that field? And was it through your courses in college or reading like on your own time? Or mm -hmm. well, actually, uh, like most of my generation, and I. Uh, have to admit I'm in my 65th summer. We started off with an Ayn Rand novel, and I was in high school, and on the summer reading list, there was a book called The Fountainhead, and I didn't like to read much at the time. I was just a, a tennis player, but uh, I started reading that book, and I uh, found it to speak to me personally, and I became very interested in Ayn Rand and objectivism, and uh, like a lot of others, I went from uh, Ayn Rand to free market economics. She wrote another book called Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal. Uh, so pretty soon I was reading Henry Hazlitt, uh, getting involved in the Foundation for Economic Education. And that got me to Ludwig von Mises. And uh, Mises uh, uh, got me to F.A. Hayek. Uh, so 
at the time, I understood your basic arguments for the free market, and they were very easy, easy to apply uh, to energy. And another uh, thinker that uh, became very influential to me as the years went on is Julian Simon. And Julian Simon uh, wrote a book, it came out in 1981, called The Ultimate Resource. And uh, oil prices peaked in 1981. The mainstream of the economics profession said that there was something different about oil and gas. It was a mineral. It inherently was depleting. Costs go up, price go up. So we were going to basically uh, uh, run, run out of it. Uh, in time, and we had to go to um, substitutes for oil and gas, which at the time uh, coal was uh, was the major one. But Simon, at the peak, at the oil peak, came came out with this book and said that uh, basically mineral resources are not any different from the general basket of goods and services. That uh, human ingenuity was the ultimate resource, and we could uh, find more supply. Uh, even as uh, record demand continued. So um, through these influences, uh, there was a worldview, a classical liberal worldview that basically said if you have private property rights, voluntary exchange, the rule of law, and just a general moral code that uh, the free market uh, can uh, meet our increasing demands for mineral energies and everything else, and that it was government intervention that uh, introduced uh, what uh, Ludwig von Mises called planned chaos in the system, that if you have price and allocation controls, uh, then you can have shortages. And another economist who was very influential on everyone at the time was Milton Friedman, and the day after Nixon's uh, wage and price control order in, in August 1971, Friedman came out lambasting it, whereas the general business community and most economists are saying, oh, this is fine, it's a temporary program. All Nixon is trying to do is to check inflationary expectations. So once we get rid of inflationary expectations, that the uh, prices will stop rising so much, and so much at the time was two to three percent inflation, believe it or not. So Friedman was on top of the energy crisis writing great articles all the time. And Ayn Rand, too, in her Ayn Rand letter, she had some very penetrating uh, insights on the energy crisis that to me were uh, are some of the best uh, analysis ever written in the energy field. As I see it, Things like wage and price controls are virtually unthinkable in today's political context. We, our kind of mainstream right side of the political spectrum seems to have a much greater respect for the free market than was the case 40 and 50 years ago. Do you also interpret it that way? Well, back in the 70s, it was big, bad, old oil. Uh, higher prices, uh, obscene profits, profit gouging, windfall profits tax, and all the rest of it. But near the end of this decade-old experience, and uh, Jimmy Carter, he finally phased out uh, oil price controls, and uh, Ronald Reagan, upon election, accelerated and totally de uh, 
deregulated uh, what Carter had started. But out of that experience, economists kind of uh, woke up to the idea, or maybe that you know uh, they should have had the uh, the understanding before that price controls, to the extent that they are effective, that they are below market prices, create shortages, and it doesn't matter what the good or service uh, is. So out of that experience, uh, you're right, Jordan, there's been no interest from the 80s to the present, uh, some decades now, in price controls on, uh, you know, helping consumers, keeping down prices. So a major lesson learned from the 70s was that uh, central planning of prices and allocation by uh, the federal government or even state governments don't work. So today, there's no constituency for price controls. The environmental movement, they're not interested in price controls because to them, to them that would uh, over-encourage consumption. The environmental movement wants energy prices to be as high as possible, certainly for oil, gas, and, the, um, uh, and coal, so that we go to other uh, energies, so-called uh, renewable energies. So uh, price controls is off the table. There's no constituency from it. So uh, we have learned from the 1970s experience. My understanding of the history of the, the energy crisis during the 70s, there were two main arguments that were put forward for the price controls, the one being a monopoly situation caused by OPEC, and then the other being sort of a neo-Malthusian argument where people were arguing basically that demand in oil and gas was going to keep going up uh, regardless of price and the supply was going to keep falling, um, which you, you sort of alluded to here earlier. Um, I think the, the second argument there is kind of interesting because I think it highlights the distinct contribution that classical liberals have made in that it fails to recognize the market as a process with entrepreneurs discovering new ways of doing things, creating new technology. Well, the, um, uh, before the 70s, economists didn't pay much attention uh, to uh, running out of oil and gas. Uh, and like I said before, the, the political situation was that if there's too much uh, oil and gas and government intervention needs to restrict supply, uh, whether it's uh, with domestic demand proration by the oil states or uh, tariffs and quotas against uh, oil coming in. Well, that, that dominated, and there was a uh, think tank uh, um, the energy resource think tank called Resources for the Future, before the 70s, they were great. They published a lot of books in the Julian Simon tradition. Uh, and Jul uh, one called Scarcity and Growth uh, was very influential uh, to Julian Simon himself. But in the 70s, uh, RFF uh, went Malthusian. They turned to an analysis by uh, an economist an article written in 1931 called The Economics of Exhaustible Resources. Uh, so they fell into the Malthusian trap. Uh, the idea of peak oil has continued uh, in recent years, even though it's pretty much refuted now. I guess the last 10 or so years, uh, the, the idea that we're running out of resources and that this could solve, let's say, the climate issue because we're going to run out of uh, oil, gas, and coal. Those, 
those ideas uh, have been refuted and the environmentalists uh, no longer uh, make them. So that, that's a real triumph of uh, free market thought. It's a triumph of the idea of resource ship. And uh, if you Google resource ship, you can find articles on this that basically say that uh, minerals, including oil, gas, and coal, and uranium, uh, are really no different from uh, so-called non-depletable uh, resources. Uh, we won that argument, and then the monopoly argument that you uh, mentioned, uh, uh, Alex, uh, that, you know, OPEC's a monopoly, big oil, the Seven Sisters, really that was also a misinterpretation because the scarcity that was happening was because of price and allocation controls taking away incentives for producers in the U.S. to find uh, more oil and gas. And a Harvard economist, jo Joseph Colt, wrote a book on uh, this, and he estimated that the U.S. was losing a million barrels a day of production, domestic production, because of disincentives from uh, price and allocation controls. Now, at the same time we were discouraging our domestic production, the United States government was allowing uh, oil imports to come in at non-regulated prices. So uh, those prices were actually above the market. So uh, the United States domestic policy, starting with Richard Nixon and uh, continuing with um, uh, Gerald Ford, uh, 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 help me, Jimmy Carter, um, uh, why am I, uh, George, uh, George Bush, uh, uh, all the way uh, through Obama, was subsidizing uh, oil imports. I, I detect that there is still a relic of the depletion um, mindset in our terminology, despite the fact that our technology has made concerns about exhausting petroleum resources irrelevant, but we, we still hear this term renewable energy used to refer to wind and solar, typically. Do you think that it's an appropriate term? I'm wary of using it myself, and perhaps I shouldn't be. What are your thoughts on renewable energy uh, as a concept? Well, uh, uh, the way I try to understand it is there's a physical science definition of uh, a resource that cannot be synthetically reproduced in human time frames like oil, gas, and coal, uh, or any mineral. Um, but that's the wrong way to look at it, because uh, from the beginning with different minerals, everyone thinks that, oh gosh, there's a fixed supply, we're producing it, we're consuming it, there's less left, uh, therefore costs must go up to find it, and prices must go up uh, to consume it. Uh, yet the empirical record uh, refutes that. You know, it's a fallacy to think that the glass is full or half full or three-fourths empty. Really, there is no glass in the sense that resources come from the mind and not the ground, as uh, Eric Zimmerman and Julian Simon and others would say. So you have to look at resources differently. Don't look at it from a physical science perspective, but look at it from an economic or business perspective. And if you look at it that way, it, it really reverses things where um, you can say that so-called renewable resources such as wind power 
are really non-renewable or they're scarcer uh, than so-called depletable resources. And I remember uh, a visit I had with uh, an Enron executive, this would have been in the late 90s, who was head of the Enron Wind Company, now uh, GE Wind, and he said there was a real problem finding good sites for, for relatively economic wind power and that really it was a depleting situation where they find the best, re, uh, the best sites for the wind turbines and they have to find the next best sites and there, that was really a resource constraint. Uh, so if you look at goods at, uh, from a business economic perspective, it can turn it completely around where so-called uh, non-renewable resources today are renewable and renewable resources are non-renewable. As you moved into the later 1970s, you had the second oil shock in 1979, I believe, and you had other incidents like the, uh, the Three Mile Island incident that also brought energy into the public conversation. When you look at the history of energy policy, the threat of um, energy crises or an environmental um, collapse, basically, uh, whether these things were real or imagined, they've played a big role in shaping the way that we've talked about policy. Could you reflect on the role of fear in the past 40 years of energy and was this dynamic something new to the 1970s, or is there a history that dates back before that? Before the 1970s, we had uh, wartime experiences in World War One, and particularly in World War Two, where uh, we see uh, uh, special demands being put on oil, oil products, and therefore the government comes in, they create a bureaucracy, they uh, set prices, maximum prices. Uh, they get involved in allocation to make sure that uh, the war machine can get uh, uh, all the oil uh, it can. Um, so certainly there's a crisis of fear um, and there's a whole question of should the, uh, in emergency situations, should government intervention uh, usurp markets? And my argument is no. If the if uh, we're in wartime, and uh, during World War II, the business tax was 95%. You got to keep a nickel out of every dollar. So if the government is getting the dollars, uh, then the government, as buyer, can buy the resources. And you don't want to have price controls. You don't want to have allocation controls. And uh, sure enough, the United States uh, had physical shortages because of price controls, and they had programs like subsidizing stripper wells, uh, creating synthetic fuels, and the rest of it, uh, and that was wholly inappropriate. Now, peacetime uh, shortages in the 70s uh, certainly introduced a fear into the market, but really, with the end of uh, price controls, we've had... Uh, a cyclical price industry, but the uh, the industry has performed. We haven't had uh, shortages. Now, turning to electricity, and electricity is really a different industry from oil and gas because uh, when you consume, you have to produce the electricity the moment it is consumed, and it's a very different business model. Now we have the situation of blackouts, 
historically, we've had blackouts from technological failures, but we could be entering into a new era where we have blackouts uh, due to bad policy where there's certainly price controls, maximum prices that are involved, but we have uh, resource constraints because we're relying on intermittent uh, resources, wind and solar, and uh, uh, if there's a lot of wind power in the system and it's a hot summer day and by definition of a heat wave or hot, it's still, the wind isn't blowing and you don't have that supply and so it could be uh, you have problems with uh, in meeting peak demand and we've had some of that this summer. It could uh, become more and more important, but certainly when you lose your power, uh, it's it's a traumatic experience. I've been through hurricanes in Houston. If you don't have power for a week, uh, it is uh, living is very difficult. So there could be an increasing fear on the electricity side because of, uh, of bad policies in the name of subsidizing so-called renewable energies. Moving out of the 70s then and into the 80s, in 79, Jimmy Carter signed an executive order to eventually remove the price controls and in early 1981, President Reagan officially removed them. By the mid-80s, oil prices had dropped pretty sharply, and the big problem then was now that there was a glut of oil that had almost turned completely on its head. Can you talk about the shift in the 80s and what the policy discussion was like during that decade? Well, starting in about 1981, the, the market was shifting. Prices stopped rising and prices started going down in the early 80s. And then in, uh, I guess it was uh, in late 85 and in the early months of 86, there was a huge drop in the price of oil in the United States and around the world. And basically, oil prices fell by 50% by half in 1986 versus 85. So all of a sudden the Malthusian fears were gone and there was U.S. refiners, uh, small refiners and U.S. independent producers that were pushing hard for tariffs, oil tariffs, to uh, reduce the supply to get the price up. It was like uh, you're back to the uh, 20s, 30s, uh, 50s, 60s. Um, so uh, that reversed everything and we had a a few quiet years, but the free market economists were arguing against uh, oil tariffs and said, go ahead, let the industry make the painful adjustments and the industry will be stronger because of it. Don't try to prop up the inefficient uh, or the, uh, the, the less efficient uh, companies in this new price environment. Then the debate really shifted in the summer of 1988 when uh, James Hansen, uh, NASA, a climate scientist proclaimed that uh, global man-made global warming was here. He, uh, he had dramatic uh, Senate uh, House testimony that summer in the environmental movement, no longer having the Malthusian running out of resources argument uh, turned uh, to anthropogenic uh, global warming uh, as a new death knell of, of fossil fuels. So by this time, traditional arguments against fossil fuels, there were three of them, 
had more or less been refuted. Uh, the idea we're running out of resources. Also, the idea that that increasing use of oil, gas, and coal meant that our urban air quality would get worse. As a matter of fact, uh, starting in the 80s, you could very clearly see that the statistics for the criteria pollutants, all of them uh, were getting better. So we had more consumption, less pollution, sort of in the Julian Simon uh, world. And then the energy security uh, argument, and of course that was uh, uh, the birth of uh, ethanol subsidies, that arose, but uh, here we are today where the energy security argument's pretty much over. So you have three arguments that are done with. There, there was very briefly a global cooling scare that uh, some scientists associated with increasing uh, sulfur dioxide, SO2 emissions from coal plants, but that uh, sort of came and went. So we have three or four arguments against fossil fuels that have come and gone, and what do we have today, and what have we had in the last 30 years? It is anthropogenic. Uh, global warming. So the debate has uh, completely shifted, and this is the main battleground now for uh, mineral energies and the uh, fossil fuel future. I've got two questions, Rob. Pick up whichever of these you'd prefer. First one is if you can tell us more about how the oil export ban fits into this story. And then the second question is how do you explain the decrease in the, the measurements of the six criteria pollutants? Um, over the course of these last 40 or 50 years uh, without giving credit to EPA, or should we give credit to EPA for that? Okay. Two different questions. The oil export ban was enacted, I believe, in 1974, and it was basically, we're running out of oil, um, uh, prices are going up, we need all this oil for the U.S. economy, therefore you can't export uh, uh, crude oil. And at the time it was a, a constraint because the United States is always exporting oil here and importing it there and there's a net number. So this created a distortion and particularly for crude from the Alaskan North Slope that would very easily be exported to the Pacific Rim. So it, it created a uh, an artificial distortion there and you need to think of the oil market as a global market that uh, we're all in it together and it's very difficult to try to um, uh, have a different price for your own country than the world price. We got rid of the oil export ban just several years ago and that has turned into a real godsend now that the United States is exporting record amounts of oil. And what this could mean uh, with a free export market is that domestic producers that would normally be complaining about oil prices and want uh, to have protectionist measures, uh, that they will uh, find markets internationally and be happier than they would be where, uh, in a situation where they couldn't export it. Uh, U.S. prices were artificially low. Uh, and they needed to turn to market demand proration or, or some other domestic program to get prices up. So um, that's briefly uh, my take on the oil export ban. The criteria pollutants, this is a real uh, debate within the free market community because you can see 
the uh, the good news of reduction of uh, all six or so criteria uh, air pollutants and say, well, this is uh, because of the Clean Air Act of 1970 as amended, uh, that this is a federal regulatory success story. And the free market, one of the free market responses to that was the improvement in these, these air pollutants was actually in evidence before the federal government and the EPA uh, got involved. And that you can ex extrapolate state, uh, local and state measures, and you could have had the positive result also. Um, uh, that you see that argued in some articles and books. Second point is that, you know, the, the final result looks good as far as the uh, reduction in these pollutants, but there's always a question at, at what cost. Could this have been done at less cost or more efficiently where uh, you got a better result? Now, that could still be in the regulatory frame. And then there's the question of could you have used uh, private property rights tort law to address uh, air pollution uh, in lieu of uh, federal uh, mandates, and sort of one size fits all. This uh, gets into some interesting what ifs with libertarian theory, like if we had private roads, we had road entrepreneurs, we had uh, freeway highway companies, whether uh, you could have a class action suit uh, against them uh, because of the automobiles that are that are polluting, whether you could have had some um, some ways where the road companies could have required each automobile to have certain uh, standards, and then on the power plant uh, side, uh, class action lawsuits, uh, you have to show you have to show damage, but uh, there could be some possibilities there. So uh, as a historian. I uh, really uh, don't take uh, a, a side. Uh, I sort of uh, default to the Julian Simon view of human ingenuity that has allowed us to combust more fossil fuels yet uh, clean up uh, the air at the same time. So as you said, in 1988, the focus shifted a lot towards the global warming debate and climate change. You had a unique opportunity to see that debate play out within the, uh, the business community in your position at Enron throughout the 90s there. Can you just talk a little bit about how you came to work at Enron and a little bit about that experience? Yes, I had a front row seat to a lot of energy politics, and um, uh, Enron was a, a renamed company. Uh, the original company was Houston Natural Gas. In uh, 1985, it merged with a major Midwest natural gas company, uh, changed the name to Enron. But the business model of Enron was very unique, and that was it was natural gas focused. It was the first, quote, natural gas major, sort of like, uh, you know, the oil major, where it was integrated. It was in exploration production. It was in pipelines. For a while, it had a, a distribution uh, company. So Ken Lay, the founder of the, and put together the company called Enron, PhD economist, very sharp, uh, very wise to the ways of Washington, D.C. He saw enormous advantages 
to pushing natural gas, really fighting against coal on one side and oil on the other. So Ken Lay introduced uh, in the early 90s something called the natural gas standard. He said, any utility, if you're thinking of adding a new power plant, you have to look at the economics of coal versus natural gas. Uh, and a uh, natural gas plant, you can build it faster, it's cheaper, and it reduces the criteria of pollutants, including CO2, that uh, you should do the right thing for your shareholders and uh, build the, the plant uh, with uh, being fired by natural gas rather than coal. Well, why did Kenley do this? For a couple of reasons. One, there were some federal laws when we were running out of oil and gas, supposedly, that hurt oil and gas versus coal. We weren't running out of coal, therefore, uh, there were some laws from the 70s, uh, the Fuel Use Act of 1978, and there was something called incremental pricing, where utilities uh, were not allowed or discouraged from building uh, gas plants. Now, the other thing is that utilities, they make their money off rate base. They get a rate of return off their invested capital, and coal plants were actually more capital intensive than gas plants. So utilities had this bias toward building coal plants, an un unintended consequence of government intervention. So lots of coal plants in the, in the 1970s were built that wouldn't have been built under a free market uh, policy. So Lay started with sort of a jawboning, the natural gas standard. Well, with the uh, global warming scare starting in 1988, Lay and Enron jumped right on the bandwagon. They were the first major energy company to, to say, uh, you know, we're not scientists, but the scientists are telling us that CO2 is a major problem. Therefore, we need to penalize coal at the expense of gas, whether it's a cap and trade program or a carbon tax. So um, Lay and Enron started a civil war within the fossil fuel, comp uh, fossil fuel industry by uh, uh, pitting natural gas versus coal. And then uh, Lay also advocated oil imports, uh, in, uh, oil tariffs, uh, because he wanted uh, natural gas to become more economic as a motor fuel. Uh, and there were uh, power plants that were using oil, and he wa Lay wanted to get those power plants off oil and onto gas. Uh, Enron was losing markets in Florida and California to oil because oil became so inexpensive. So uh, Enron created a two-front and then a three-front uh, civil war uh, within the fossil fuel industry that really legitimatized the, uh, the issue and later on BP and other companies uh, joined in. Uh, so the political capitalism model, the crony capitalism model for Enron was to price carbon dioxide to advantage uh, natural gas at the expense of coal. And also, Enron got into solar power and wind power in a very big way, and uh, they were also involved in energy efficiency uh, type measures that uh, depended on uh, government uh, efficiency standards. So in all sorts of ways, uh, Enron became the most interventionist company in the United States uh, economy and, and sort of set a template for what I call the contra-capitalist company.
and you use the term political capitalism, and you've gone on to write a series of books explaining Enron's approach to business and pushing back at the popular narrative that the collapse of the company was a result of uh, an adherence to free mar market doctrine. And instead, you've put forward this idea that, no, their approach was actually political capitalism. What do you mean by the term political capitalism? And why is understanding the history of Enron through the lens of political capitalism important to understanding uh, energy policy in the United States? Well, uh, in Enron's heyday, Enron was a favorite company of environmentalists. And uh, I remember being Enron's representative on the Clinton-Gore President's Council on Sustainable Development. Everyone loved Enron. Uh, they bought into natural gas as a transition fuel uh, to uh, sort of as a bridge between fossil fuels and a uh, sustainable, renewable energy uh, world. And... Uh, at, at the time, you know, the environmentalists really didn't care that Enron was really very politically active because Enron was, quote, doing all the right things, investing in wind and solar. Uh, and Enron was getting awards at the Kyoto Protocol, uh, the Kyoto negotiations in uh, Japan in uh, late 1996. Enron received all sorts of environmental awards. So Enron was the left's, the progressive's favorite company. Then Enron implodes, and the left quickly goes, changes the narrative. They sort of forget that uh, Enron was, uh, you know, the environmentalist uh, favorite company, and they said that Enron is capitalism, Enron is greed, all the bad actions, all the strategic deceit, uh, all the uh, investor losses of Enron uh, was a game changer in that this is why you have to have regulation to prevent the Enrons. Well, that story can be completely turned around, not only by talking about how uh, Enron was the first company to embrace a whole global warming agenda, uh, but Enron was also a master at gaming complex regulatory structures. The accounting system is wholly politicized. Enron was a master at uh, figuring out ways to get the results it wanted by gaming the uh, gap, generally accepted accounting principles. So through Enron's cronyism and also Enron's gaming of uh, regulatory structures where false incentives are created by government intervention into the accounting uh, system, uh, Enron was able to fool everyone. Uh, so if you look closely at Enron, Enron is just the opposite of a capitalist company. It's a contra-capitalist company. Uh, it engages in a, a number of practices that uh, the classical liberals from Adam Smith to Samuel Smiles to Ayn Rand to Charles Koch have warned against. Uh, so the, what's interesting about Enron, <clears throat> there was some prosecutable fraud involved but almost everything Enron did was legal. And so Enron really showed or revealed the perils of a mixed economy and not a capitalist economy. Moving forward to today now, the impact of Enron, I think we can see its impact on our business climate as well as our regulatory climate. If you look at policies like the Green New Deal and 
um, some of the things that are being put forward now. There's a lot of the elements of the things that we've talked about that have gone on over the past 40 years. Do you see the Green New Deal and these things as a, sort of a culmination of this process that's been playing out over uh, some time now? Well, what's interesting to me about the Green New Deal is it's kind of like the 1970s where it wakes up uh, the free market community and the Republicans, the conservative community, that something is really wrong here. You have lots of free market economists, uh, people we know, uh, professors and all, who uh, they follow energy, but now they're very interested in energy when they see the uh, Green New Deal because the the deep ecology mindset, for decades I've seen this as sort of the new central planning. You know, F.A. Hayek, he, he understood central planning, socialism, uh, Mises too, as something uh, different uh, than what now is being pushed as sort of the new organizing principle for society. Uh, and that's a term that uh, comes from, uh, from Al Gore. So uh, it's, a, it's a good thing that the Green New Deal has been introduced, uh, that uh, there's no longer these ideas that are behind the curtain, uh, so to speak. We can debate them. It could be we have a presidential election that's a referendum on uh, sort of the uh, free market, fossil fuel, dense energy-driven economy versus uh, something that the uh, progressive left wants that's just the opposite of energy plenty. Well, as much as we as energy analysts would, would like if that were at front and center, I'm not so sure it will be with all all the other things that are being discussed. And you see even the, the Democratic Party that is pushing these policies, they're shying away from having a climate-centered debate, it sounds like, is the, is the most recent development. So I'm not sure we, we'll be able to draw a lesson about people's perspectives on these questions from the presidential election, is what I'm saying. Well, I would, I'd like to see some presidential debates once the Democratic uh, Democrat nominee uh, is elected. I'd like to see one presidential debate uh, uh, inside a gas-fired combined cycle plant, and then I'd like to see another debate underneath the wind turbine to cover energy issues and let them discuss everything else, such as uh, uh, health care, which seems to be the number one issue right now. But uh, energy will, uh, issues will not go away. Uh, the uh, Malthusian mindset, the, the progressive left knows uh, that this is their number one issue to check industrialization, modernism, uh, today's standard of living. Uh, so we're going to be fighting this for a long, long time. We've had a pretty wide-ranging discussion here, and uh, I think we're getting pretty close to our time. But uh, my last question is, what do you see as being the biggest challenge for uh, proponents of free market energy policies going forward? Where are there opportunities for more research and for uh, us to develop a better understanding of, um, of energy and its place in our society? Well, the big macro issue will be around climate change and the sustainability of fossil fuels. And under that umbrella, there's all sorts of uh, fronts in that debate. Uh, there's 
some micro issues such as uh, ethanol subsidies where it's just pure cronyism at work. It's not uh, the free market uh, community versus the environmentalists. It's just uh, old-fashioned backroom politics who has uh, more, uh, more clout politically. Unfortunately, this whole climate debate has shifted resources and attention uh, of the free market community away from uh, another significant issue, which is to me the question of um, public utility regulation, uh, giving franchise protection to companies to be a monopolist uh, in a certain geographic area, and then uh, as uh, quid pro quo for that, uh, having uh, rate regulation based on a reasonable uh, or justified cost plus a uh, rate of return uh, because the natural monopoly model, which is uh, in place for electric utilities, for uh, natural gas utilities, and it also exists uh, to some extent with interstate uh, natural gas pipelines and to a lesser extent interstate oil pipelines. This is where we need a lot of free market reforms where we actually have firm on firm uh, competition. And if we can get rid of, if we can get out of the current public utility model, uh, this will also help us to uh, put utilities in a position where they really put consumers first, where they uh, cost minimize to increase their profits uh, where we can get rid of a lot of the junk that goes under the um, or in the areas of wind power solar power and demand side management or uh, energy efficiency programs where there's uh, re uh, cross subsidization among customers so um, there's going to be a whole lot to do with global warming it could be more decades uh, even though the climate math is becoming more and more impossible uh, by the day. But uh, uh, free marketeers really need to challenge the uh, public utility model and get to a true free market uh, with uh, natural gas and electricity uh, transmission and distribution. Our guest today has been Rob Bradley. Rob, thanks for taking the time to speak with us today. Good to be with you.